Hey everybody, welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. Uh, on today's show, kind of a fun conversation about the uh, decade in review. Florida Gators basketball, obviously a pretty special decade. Five Elite Eights, a Final Four, uh, a few SEC championships, SEC tournament championship. Uh, so, you know, a really good uh, a really good decade. Going to be tough to top in 2020s, but I like what we're building. Um and, and I think we have a, a good chance to win the SEC uh, this season um, in, in what's kind of a been an interesting non-conference slate for everybody, including the Gators. But wide open SEC, like the performance that we saw Saturday, and hopefully uh, we'll also preview the Alabama game and the Gators can get off to a good start, set the tone for conference play. Happy New Year to everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, you guys really make the show, and, and we appreciate it. Look forward to 2020. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Um, we're going to talk about Florida's big win yesterday over Long Beach State. We're also going to kind of close the decade uh, with with a discussion of – I love that my dogs just decide to go crazy at the beginning of our recording. Um, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Uh, so everybody just – you know, forgive my dogs. Um, yeah, so Eric, really good performance yesterday. I mean, you know, you kind of have to you have to factor in that Long Beach State's bad, but uh, you know, you can only play the team in front of you. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, that's not a great not a great team, uh, <laughs> no question about it. Um, but uh, I would say that Florida, you could say that Florida just like did what they should have done, but I, I would look at it and say that they did a little bit better than, uh, than kind of the bare minimum, I should say, you know, like they, uh, there was points where they just dominated on the, gla- dominated them on the glass. I mean, that's something like, yeah, they, they should have done that. Um, there was times where they overwhelmed them defensively. It's like, yeah, they should have done that, but they also had some moments of, of some great individual playmaking, uh, some great shot making, uh, some things that, that you could look at the opponent and, uh, uh, you know, part of that is definitely you get in, you get in rhythm early against a team that's, that's not great. Uh, then suddenly you're feeling good kind of moving forward and you have that, uh, that momentum. But uh, I would say this was more, more than a nothing game. I mean, there's some people that I don't think any outcome would have said, Hey, Florida played a great game. I mean, Florida could have won by a hundred and people would still would have said like, well, wow, that's just a bad team. Uh, <laughs> I, I understand where that comes from a bit, but I think you've also got to look at, uh, uh, at kind of the intensity the team played with, uh, they they could have gotten complacent and they didn't. Um, and uh, just still, the execution was was clean. There was never a point where I thought, "Wow, Florida's playing," you know, not very well and are just overwhelming with their talent or their size or their athleticism. I, I thought they always kind of played crisp and did uh, uh, played about as well as as they could have in that scenario. So one thing I thought was really good was uh, guard rebounding. I know it's kind of a weird place to start. But I guess no better place to start with them with Noah Locke, who we talked about kind of at a little more length on the last show before Christmas. And, and um, you know, Mike White said something that they've emphasized this year is, is rebounding down or what he calls rebounding down with his guards. Um, you know, one thing, Trey Mann also rebounded pretty well, I thought. And it's something that can help your offense get going, obviously, when a, when a guard receives. But – what were your thoughts on Noah Locke's game? Obviously, first career double-double. I kind of feel like you live with the 6 of 15 shooting from him when, when he's in rhythm. Yeah, he, I mean, he still took some of these dribble jump shots. I, I, I don't love it. <laughs> um, I just see a, a stat line like that, and I say, like, there probably could have been three misses taken off. Yeah. But there, there's part of me that's definitely uh, with you a little bit that's like, hey, if, uh, uh, you, you, live, you live with that if he's going to hit uh, hit a few of the shots. Uh, this is kind of the, talking about the guards rebounding. I do think that's part of a, uh, a bigger thing that we saw against long beach state. And that was a dedication to playing faster. And, and part of the reason Florida hasn't been able to play faster uh, is just that they haven't been able to defensively rebound super well. So I, I think you see a game like this, where they, uh, where you, the guards were really trying to rebound. And then as soon as they got a rebound, you could see that they were really cleanly looking for an outlet pass to, to Nemhart. I thought that Nemhart, you did some interesting things actually if you watched him there was times where where shots would go up and he would like 
not really be looking for the ball, but he would start running in kind of a, a, a large curve so that as soon as he got the ball, he'd be, he'd have his head up court and he could, he could turn. So I, I really think that Florida had, had been working on their transition attack. And this was a game where uh, they said like, Hey, our, our twos and threes really need to help be helping our fours and fives on the glass. Uh, and uh, just know that, you know, Nemhard is going to be uh, starting the transition. So if we secure the ball, we can get it to him quick. And I just thought there was uh, a noticeably, the, the effort was noticeably there more from the guards trying to rebound. Uh, and then I also thought when they rebounded the ball, they, they knew where Nemhart was going to be. And that's something I don't think we've really seen as much in the past. So um, I would say that was the result of something I, I'm assuming they have been working on um, pretty hard in practice. Yeah. I mean, um, certainly a commitment to transition off misses, uh, which starts a lot. Like you were just saying, with guards and with Andrew Nimar kind of getting up floor off misses, I didn't notice that. I'll have to to rewatch for that. I did notice that that Andrew was definitely looked more comfortable pushing uh, off misses, and that the guard who did rebound was very quickly head up, looked to find Andrew Nimar when he was on the floor. Um, other times when when it was Trey Mann on the floor, it was head up and go. Um, and you know Trey had three turnovers, one of which really drew the ire of Mike White, but Florida took care of the ball better in transition. I think to some extent, because it was, it was guards and maybe not Scotty Lewis or Keontae Johnson in transition. I don't want to be too hard on Keontae in that, in that respect, but I do think just kind of a commitment to situational transition is something that will really help this team. And I, I think I tweeted what their Points per at one point was 1.2 on transition. I didn't see what the final number was. I'm sure they were over a point per possession on transition offense, which really is where you should be, Eric. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's a number that even last year when Florida uh, wasn't a great transition team, they hit that mark. So uh, uh, that was something interesting to uh, uh, to hear. I, I mean, we're not talking about this, uh, this game particularly right now, but uh, one thing I did think was interesting was that uh, you know, people were still calling for Florida to to play faster no matter what. And saw a lot of people saying, hey, Florida should play faster and they'll automatically score. Uh, they only had three transition shots against Utah State. Or sorry, three transition possessions. Hmm. Uh, they actually only got one shot off out of those three because they turned it over twice. Uh, and the one shot they had, they missed. So I think it was uh, kind of interesting to see that like, it kind of supported what, what we've been talking about and, and that White has been saying about how uh, this team just isn't great in transition, uh, but a game against Long Beach State, um, uh, I know that that's uh, that's an opponent you should be able to to beat in transition, but uh, uh, that they still were able to do it in a way that looked more impressive than against some of their other not great competition. But um, yeah, like you were saying originally, uh, being above a point of possession is where you should be. That's where most teams in college basketball are. Um, even last year's Florida team had to, that wasn't great in transition. They found a way to be over a point per possession. So uh, in transition. So I think that that's, uh, that's gotta be a goal for this team. Uh, Andrew with um, five points kind of, you know, didn't really, like I said, looked to like, and like you said, really look to make passes to facilitate off facilitate offense without scoring, which a lot of times really is what Andrew is best at. Um, 13 assists. I don't know if it's a career high or a season high. One of those two, certainly a season high. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a career high. Um, and, uh, yeah, just something that I thought were, uh, made more impressive by the fact that his assists weren't like, just like, Hey, you know, he went guard to wing and, uh, Noah Locke pulls up from deep contested and hits it. And, and then gets an assist. I mean, a lot of his assists were, just absolutely wide open dunks to the to the big men where uh, Nemhart would get in the paint, he'd get the the big man coming over to help, and who would jump, and then he would lay it off, and, and it was just like these uncontested, like these were as pure of layups as you can get. Like those those buckets belonged to Nemhart, um, as well as some of these uh, these ones in transition or or semi kind of off a semi break where he got into the paint and he he'd dump it off to a wide open shooter. Like I thought these were thirteen like legitimate awesome assists uh and uh yeah i he he kind of sprinted into that well he actually started the game off where he just like sprinted into that long two which honestly i will tell you this uh, watching that andrew i don't know if you remember the shot i'm talking about neil it was florida's first shot of the game where florida got the ball and sprinted down the floor and and nemhart 
just pulled up with his foot on the line for a long two that was contested. And it honestly <laughs> made me think that Flo- that Mike White was like, you guys take the, f- like, literally, I want you to take the first potential shot you see, because it was like not a normal attempt from Memhart. It wasn't an attempt that this like team normally takes outside of like Noah Locke sometimes. And it was just like, I, it was just so surprising, but to see Florida so committed to, uh, to, to scoring off the, off the fast break the entire game, there's honestly part of me that is like white told, t- told the first person to get the ball, you better sprint and you better take a shot in the first six seconds because that's a little bit what it looked like. Uh, but that was Nemhart's like one time really um, hunting his offense. Uh, he had that, he had one, uh, one layup with his left hand that he, that he dropped short, which was uh, wide open and too bad. But I still look at a game like that. And I mean, like, that's incredible. Three steals as well. I think that were all, yeah, yeah, all three impressive. Steals. And yeah, just a good game for him, despite, um, you know, only scoring five points. I mean, 13 assists. That's uh, that's just incredible. And he did it with, with the rare under 30 minutes from him. So all that work, in uh in under 30 i did think that that was absolutely scripted play at the beginning of the game and you know that's the only reason he takes that contested shot uh you'll remember the sec tournament last year against lsu where uh florida managed to score on their first possession after winning the tip uh in similar fashion i think it was like a three a three pass jump shot by uh jalen hudson (laughs) which happened to go in and oh thank goodness it did right um Sometimes Jalen was like the oh the first shot win and I'm gonna play well, guy. Um, but yeah, so Ford has done that before and I think this was that again. Uh, I did want to mention the three point shooting. Gators forty percent from the field. Uh, started off better than that though. I think fifty percent at halftime. Uh, Kerry Blackshear in particular probably felt really really relieved to see the ball go in. Yeah, to see those shots. I mean. Uh, that's something that I, that I for sure like. Uh... Having some technical difficulty with Eric right now. But oh, sorry about that. My uh, my Wi-Fi literally dropped out. Uh, okay, we're good now. Um, but I mean, Kerry Blackshear, uh, he uh, just to see him kind of uh, see those shots go through, I think is so huge, kind of early because there there have been times where the first couple ones have missed and he hasn't been able to bounce back. Like it's, yeah. been, you can tell it's, it's for him, the confidence uh, just because I mean, quite frankly, he hasn't been a consistent shooter for his career. Um, that he, and for that reason, I, I can kind of see why if those first shots aren't falling. Um, I mean, that's something that I actually wrote about this morning. It's at the Gator country uh, in regards to Kerry Blackshear, whether he should be used um, on the outside more often or on the inside more often. Uh, I thought he kind of showcased uh, a little bit of both in this one, which is, uh, obviously, uh, this is this is the ideal. You'd love to say uh, you have games like this where he goes and posts up and gets to gets to the free throw line eight times and and gets some layups as well and also hits three threes. I mean, that would be the uh, the dream. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but hey, in a game like this, it, it happens. Almost to seventh double double, a little short. Um, probably gets there if if Mike White doesn't extend his bench, which I'm glad he did. That was smart. But uh, you know, Kerry's gonna finish. Well, I guess they still have the Baylor game, but he's going to enter conference play with six double doubles. One thing, uh oh, one thing I've told uh, people that have asked, you know, outside the program, and I did a podcast this week where I was kind of, oh, what's wrong with Florida? It was like one of these deals where they talked to some of the preseason favorites, somebody from their program for like five to 10 minutes. And, and, uh, you know, I said, you know, it hasn't been Kerry Blackshear. He's kind of been as advertised, to be honest, if you look at him just from a statistical standpoint, Eric. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because even for some of the tough games where he got into foul trouble or got got ejected, like uh, early, it's <laughs> he's had some of these games that, that kind of seem like they are uh, – uh, that might, like, bring down his averages. But, yeah, I mean, you look at his numbers and they're, they're – pretty similar to what he had at Virginia Tech. I mean, uh, some of the efficiency isn't isn't exactly uh, the right. same. Um, but at the same time, I mean, like, his three-point shooting that, that hasn't been great, I mean, it's actually pretty similar to what it was at Virginia Tech. Um, he hasn't been able to post up as effectively, so so some of those percentages aren't quite the same, but you look at the totals of, like, you know, 14 and 8, that was kind of what he did at, uh, at Virginia Tech. So, uh, and, and I think that that's something that you get from someone who, who has a post-up game down low is, uh, those guys are going to be a little more 
uh, a little more consistent. I mean, when you when you kind of mostly live within uh, within that area near the paint, you're you're going to be able to uh, get those offensive rebound putbacks, things like that, that are a little more consistent than you know maybe a guard that's uh, more reliant on the three point shot. But uh, that's something that you get with uh, with Gary Blackshear, I think, is you really do get the consistency. Yeah, and I think Mike White has said you know correctly that they haven't really we haven't seen you know, carry really get in rhythm yet either. Um, although I think, you know, you kind of look at this game, you look at the Utah state game and you're starting to see him assert himself a little bit and play with a little more confidence. I think so. And I think that's part of the, uh, uh, part of Florida figuring out just how they want to play basketball and how they want him to, uh, to get the ball. Uh, I mean, you do look at those early games and I, I know it's really like, honestly, like a different era. They were playing a different style of basketball and it was, uh, Hey, let's go four out, one in with Blackshear being alone, being inside, and um, let's let's play some dribble drive and, and get some duck into Blackshear. Um, obviously, that didn't work, but I think that part of that was also just that it was you know maybe a little bit tougher for for Blackshear to get into rhythm, and then uh, it got right into him uh, being the the main decision maker within that that, that Princeton offense. Uh, but I don't feel like the entire team around him was super comfortable in that. So. Yeah. Uh, while he didn't look particularly great because he had the ball in his hands, I think a lot of that was because the players running around him making the actions uh, didn't feel particularly comfortable. Uh, but now you see that they're a lot more comfortable in that set. Uh, he's, you know, he's able to showcase his passing more, uh, really hitting Keontae Johnson on a bunch of curls, uh, hitting Noah Locke flaring off it for, for open threes. Um, and then also just uh, doing a lot of the side ball screen that, that gets him uh, either the ball on the roll or, or gives him a post-up opportunity off that. I just feel like the team is finding him more, uh, like finding the ways that it's best to use him. And uh, that's, uh, that's obviously helping his game and, and making him feel more confident. I uh, agree with that. Uh, kind of last couple notes on the uh, on the Long Beach game, unless there's anything Eric wanted to hit on. Six Gators in, do- in double figures, first time in two seasons. That's occurred. Uh, the last time the Gators did that was uh, the, the days of Chris Chioza, Kayvon Allen, Igor Kulichov, and uh, Jalen Hudson. Um, so that, that team actually had a, a couple games where six guys got into double figures. Gators do that yesterday. Um and, you know, I think we should probably discuss the fact that one of those guys was Omar Payne, who makes a spot start uh, for – and I think Payne kind of leads to the last two things I wanted to discuss. Uh, so, but Payne makes a spot start for for Scotty Lewis, plays exceptionally well, I thought, very active, and uh, get some praise from Will You Get on Twitter for, for his motor and, uh, and ceiling. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, will you get nose motor? That's uh, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, I would say if there's anyone to uh, to get that compliment from, I, I would say that's about as good of a guy. So uh, it's cool to see him still supporting the program for sure. Yeah, Every, everyone loves him. So uh, that's awesome. But uh, yeah, I would say just his his ability just to pound the offensive glass. I mean, uh, once again, obviously they're they're going to out athlete a team like Long Beach State, and when Omar Payne is at the four, um, that's even more of a mismatch. Uh, but I do see, you know, I wrote about this early in the year that I just think the offensive rebound is so important to uh, to the Gators. So uh, being able to play Omar Payne for some longer stretches is, is so key. I, I mean, the Utah State game was one where Omar Payne kind of got played off the floor, I would say. And it, you know, made it that Florida wasn't able to do very well in the glass because they couldn't play as big as they they would have needed to have been to uh, to dominate the boards there. So uh, a game like this, it's always good to get him some more run, uh, to get him more comfortable in the offense. Uh, th- there was still a couple moments where uh, uh, he had the one moment stepping on the stepping on the end line when he was posting up that uh, it just kind of showed that I don't think he's like fully aware of his body yet. I, I think there's just a lot of um, kind of balance and athleticism work that needs to be done with him. But I mean, like, hey, he's a freshman. That's that's going to come. But uh, yeah. just to see that, that work on the glass, I, I think that sometimes he – can really pass the ball effectively. Um, so I thought he had some good moments moving the ball. Um, but I mean, just his ability to, to block shots is, is incredible. Uh, that, that length and, and jumping ability he has and, uh, and on the glass as well. I think there's going to be games like that in the SEC where um, and we saw that the last couple of seasons where um, just shots aren't really falling for both teams. So it becomes who's going to be able to get more rebounds and more possessions that way. Um, Florida wasn't really equipped to, to handle those kind of matchups. Uh, if Omar Payne can come in uh, and, you know, maybe he won't be doing these kind of starts, uh, but if he can still come in and, and give effective stretches, I, I do think it's going to uh, have a couple big moments for the Gators. 
Yeah, this gets back to a point we've made on the podcast a couple different times, especially in conference play, Eric. Games are won at the margins, and like any little thing you can do to gain an extra point, an extra two or three point advantage, you know, uh, makes a huge difference. And we saw from Omar Penn yesterday, kind of a player that's kind of capable of of giving you those those little edges that, as you just alluded to, can can really be the difference. The other thing I thought was super fascinating, Eric, and this is one of the – it can be even even be our uh, coach's corner, though I didn't put it in the run of show, so I don't know how deep into the X's and O's we'll get. But I did notice a 40-minute commitment to two bigs yesterday. What was your thought on that? I, uh, once again, I think it's just something you will uh... – you will need to see. I mean, uh, I mean, you also look at a game where, uh, like Florida's roster just has so few wing possibilities. So you take one out in Scotty Lewis, and uh, it's pretty limited. But I also yeah. think uh, sometimes you just gotta say like, hey, let's do it for forty minutes and let's really see what uh, what kind of happens. So uh, one thing I thought was really interesting that they did was uh, this. Like, I, I don't know what exactly you know who pioneered this, but I, I do know that Mark Few at Gonzaga does this better than anyone. Uh, like people talk so much, like you see in the NBA, people do spread pick and roll where, you know, the, you have the, the ball handler and the screen setter. Uh, you got those two guys involved. You really want the three other players to be like out on the perimeter. Like you want someone to have to like really leave their man to come help. So you see that like spread pick and roll so often. And now you see that in the college game too, but like Mark Few and Gonzaga, they do the exact opposite, really, where they pick and roll uh, with one of, with their other big that isn't screening. They put him on the low block, and they have him trying to seal help. So what that does is uh, you know where the help is coming from because uh, you have brought it there. So off the pick and roll, you can either hit the roller or you can hit the other big that's sealing. Um, but also because the big man is sealing, if he gets a really big, a really good quality seal, and then you hit the roller. Uh, then there's no one to help over. If, if someone does help, you've got a wide, wide open jump shooter. So uh, it's kind of interesting because there's so much talk about spread pick and roll uh, where I see North Carolina does this really well too. I know that North Carolina isn't very good this year, so some people aren't going to take that as, yeah. uh, as a compliment, but but Gonzaga does it better than anyone. If you watch Gonzaga, uh, watch. They don't do a spread ball screen. They do like a condensed ball screen. I know there's a fancier lingo for that that's, that's better than that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I saw a little bit of that with uh, with Florida where they – they also do that with that kind of like like butt screen play you call it like uh, in basketball circles where um, instead of like facing the ball handler the screener is just like facing the hoop and while that's happening the other big man is is working for a seal and then uh, because the the person setting the quote unquote screen is just like square to the basket he's not like forcing the ball handler one single way uh, the ball handler can go either direction. And again, because you've got the other big sitting in the paint, you're uh, you're sealing the help, and you're not allowing uh, any of the guards to kind of help down. So it's uh, point being, it's something that you can do with uh, with two bigs that I think is really interesting. And uh, I, I saw Florida do it a little bit in uh, in this game, and I thought that was pretty wise. Yeah, so that's a that's an interesting. It'll be interesting to see if, and I think that, you know, Chris Harry was saying that you know that everybody thinks that Scotty Lewis. Should be all right, but obviously concussions are weird. Unfortunately, we've seen that in Florida. We know that all too well from the last couple seasons. Um, you know, it'd really be nice to have Scotty Lewis back for Kyra Lewis in Alabama, uh, which is when uh, conference play starts next season. Alabama is six and five, Eric. Uh, it's hard to say they have a nice win. I, I don't know how good Belmont is. They looked really good in that game, which I watched some of. Um, but then, you know, they've had a couple games this season where they've looked a lot less good. Uh, I don't think Penn is very bad. They lost them. I don't think Penn State is very bad. Uh, they they lost a close game to them. But they were really run off the floor by Iowa State. Um, they weren't particularly competitive against Rhode Island. Uh, so, you know, kind of an up-and-down non-conference like most of the SEC what are some initial thoughts you have on on this uh, Alabama team first year under Nate Oates? Yeah, well, everyone kind of knew that Nate Oates was going to try to play super, super fast, and he has done exactly that. I mean, they're, they're sixth in adjusted tempo on Ken Palm. They're eighth in average possession length, which is really a more uh, a better way of actually seeing how fast a team plays. So I will say they're the eighth fastest team in the country um, using that metric. Uh, so something I actually find really interesting is, uh, like you mentioned, is – uh, they got run off the floor at Iowa State, 
or not sorry, not at Iowa State um, against Iowa State. That was a neutral site. I, I think I watched that game. Yes, um, Rhode Island. They they weren't competitive with, and they also got beat pretty badly by North Carolina. So those are, um, which you know we know North Carolina is not the North Carolina of of usual. Um, <laughs> but you look at those three games that they lost: um, Iowa State, North Carolina, and Rhode Island. Those are three teams that also like to play really really fast. So you got this Alabama team that like wants to really get up and down the floor, um, but they played, you know, these teams that really want to get up and down the floor and those teams just did it better than, um, than Alabama does. Quite frankly, that would be my, uh, the way I look at it. So uh, that's uh, that. And even actually Penn state is another team that plays super fast. Um, Penn, I, I don't think plays particularly fast, but I, I could be wrong. I didn't watch that game, uh, but Penn state's another. So, so you kind of, uh, you kind of see like they try to play fast, but they get beat by teams who play fast and just do it better than them. So to me, that kind of says Alabama isn't actually that good at playing fast. Um, quite yet. I mean, this is first, first year of Nate Oates, but um, just so far they're getting beat at their own game. How that's relevant to Florida, we'll have to see because it's not like Florida is a team that plays super fast. Obviously, they just tried to against Long Beach State. And hey, potentially part of that was preparation for this Alabama game where they, they knew that the tempo was going to be accelerated. Um, but I would say uh, it just kind of overarching about Alabama, they, they want to play fast. Um, they're okay turning the ball over because of it. Um, there is one very interesting stat, or it's actually not that interesting. It's just hilarious to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, so they shoot a ton of three-point shots. And uh, the way that you know that they are really dedicated to taking three-point shots is uh, is the amount of bad ones they will take. So <laughs> I want to first update uh, the, the listeners on something that, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot on this podcast. That is the number of unguarded catch-and-shoot attempts Florida has. Um, so, so far, you know, after Long Beach State, that number went up. So they are now at 68.5% of their jump shots being unguarded, which is a, just a massive percent. Like, that is crazy. So that was... That was uh, that was yeah that was sixty eight point five percent of Florida's catch and shoot shots being unguarded. Um, Alabama only thirty three percent of their shots are unguarded. So sixty seven percent of their catch and shoot attempts are guarded. So they just shoot a ton of contested wow. shots. So that's how you can tell that they are just like completely dedicated to putting up threes, like no matter what. Like they are, and that was you know. So I went and watched a bunch of those possessions, and you can see like the mandate is to. Um, you know, if the ball gets pushed to the wing in transition and you've got half a look at the rim, like you put up that three. So uh, for that reason, they've, you know, obviously been susceptible to some pretty big runs. You, when you make a dedication to just shooting threes, no matter the quality of the shot, you're going to be prone to some, some wild swings. And that's been the case for them, but that should, uh, should make for some, uh, some pretty intriguing basketball against Florida. Yeah. I mean, look, and, and I wanted to say, I, let me add this. They were going to do that regardless of roster composition, because that's kind of the way that Nate Oates' teams played at Buffalo, which is why there are all these big stylistic questions about how that would translate from a mid-major league to a, to a power six league. Um, by the way, when Nate Oates was coaching high school ball at the beginning of this decade in Michigan, uh, that's what his teams did there too, Eric. Uh, he just ran up and down, fired up a lot of threes, uh, got tenacious in, in kind of – uh, in the pressure and the trapping that they do on defense. And and uh, they also kind of have the roster to, to play that way, sort of. Although I think they probably would have had it more were it not for a couple injuries. And in fact, this would be a kind of, I think, a problematic matchup for Florida, quite honestly, if uh, James Rojas uh, wasn't out for the season and uh, obviously the very high four-star player, uh, Jawan Gary, who was lost the day before we cast media ballots. <laughs> um, and so it was funny because like I wrote one out in September and I think Eric and I did a show at some point late that month where we talked about them being kind of maybe a top five team in the league. Um, and then I ended up voting them like ninth, I think in my sec predictions, because I really did think that after Rojas went out, they really needed Jawan Gary to have a big year and Jawan Gary, uh, who is definitely a six, five wing. Like, you know, I, th I think that injury was a big deal. And by the way, shouts to Malik Grady, who's been ripping Frank Martin's recruiting in honor of Jason Kessler being absent from uh, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Somebody had to fill that void. And Jawan Gary, he's like the biggest example of Frank Martin fail on the recruiting trail. He grew up a mile from uh, the Gamecocks home arena. Oof. So yeah, that hurts. It, 
it's rough. I, I, I don't, we don't need enough like NATO type train, I guess. Um, but a lot of people were definitely all aboard the Oats Express. There are people in basketball circles that really loved this hire. There were others that were skeptical and kind of wanted to wait and see. I think you could classify. I might have speak for Eric. I was definitely like the caution light on it. Like, I just don't know if you can play this way in a power six league. I guess we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was skeptical too. And I mean, that's something that, that I would say just like that. I mean, if some, some wise uh, athletic director uh, sought me for counsel uh, regarding <laughs> Nate Oates, I would say, uh, if he's going to continue to play the same style of basketball, what you're asking him to do is uh, to go against the last decade of college basketball history. Uh, teams have just not had success taking 23% of your shots in transition. Um, I, you also look at it like, so uh, So Alabama is, is like eighth in possession length right now. So I would see the eighth fastest team. Um, St. John's is up there as well. Um, other than that, you've got to you know go a little bit of ways before you get more power power six teams so uh and again that's st john's who actually had a really good start to the year but uh, you know not really high quality thing so we'll see we'll see when when nato's does continue to to recruit his guys and, and, and uh to see how how that kind of goes but at the same time even though he didn't recruit this roster i would say that the roster actually fit a lot of what he wanted to do like this isn't a yeah. natural fit with guys like herbert jones and and uh john petty uh alex reese as, as your your five man who can do those things so um it's not, I don't know, like, I, I actually like the roster. I like some pieces, but, but I, like, I love Kyra Lewis. He hasn't been able to get the most out of Kyra Lewis. I just don't think Kyra Lewis has, has been great. And Kyra Lewis is someone who's, you know, good in transition. But um, I, I just think when this team is predicated almost, I shouldn't say entirely on transition, but they certainly look a lot more comfortable in transition than, uh, than in the half court. So, uh, well, actually, if you so I can even look at it now. So they're actually 0.944 points per possession in transition, which uh, is actually not good to be to be honest. Uh, that's not a high number for a team that's no. trying to do that. And in the half court, they're 0.885 points per possession. So that is uh, uh, that's that's not great. That is actually uh, you know that's below the Florida Gators. Now the Florida just had a nice game against Long Beach State to get those, uh, those <laughs> numbers up. So, so, yeah, I, I just feel like the style of play is not getting the best out of Kyra Lewis, who is a very, very special player. Um, and it's also not a style that is really conducive to uh, to, win, to having sustained winning and power six. So, I mean, we'll see in the long term. Um, in the short term, I would say that this is going to be a, a team that just wants to make the, te- the, the games against teams like Florida really scrambled. They want it to be sloppy, and uh, they're going to try to heat up Florida and make them go faster. Um, I would say if you look at last year, Florida had a lot more success slowing teams down that wanted to play fast uh, than getting sped up by teams that wanted to play fast. So uh, that's actually a matchup that I like. I just think when a fast team tries to play a slow team, it's just so much easier to slow a game down than it is to speed it up. So I do think that 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 matchup, that kind of tempo battle, I I really do think it benefits Florida. Yeah, no, I would agree with that from uh, both hassle metrics and and Kempom rate them as similar to Xavier offensively kind of in that bracket uh, from an efficiency standpoint, uh, even though Alabama averages 11 more points a game. Uh, so, you know, you play faster, you're going to score more. But from an efficiency standpoint, the big difference is that they haven't uh, defended particularly well. They, they, they have a rather simple defense, I think, Eric. It, it, it's pretty much man-to-man. Um, and, you know, really rely on your guys to rotate. The one guy that's really helped, I think, defensively, and, and I think easily their best defender, is uh, Beetle Bolden. Um, no surprise, the West Virginia transfer, he kind of understands that ball pressure that they like to play. Um, you know, I don't think, and I'm kind of interested in your take, their wings are dangerous players uh, from an offensive standpoint, particularly John Petty, who can heat up like a microwave. They are... I think exploitable players from a defensive standpoint, despite being pretty dang, pretty dang athletic. Yeah. That's something that's really interesting. I feel like people look at any athletes and say, and if you, you know, if you're athletic and you're like six, five, six, 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 seven, people just automatically are like good defender. Yep. Check. And they don't really watch it. Yeah. Uh, quite frankly, I would be the exact same had I not actually watched them play. Um, but yeah, Herbert Jones, John Petty. Uh, yeah. Just, just, the, the defensive instincts just aren't super there. I, I just don't feel 
um, which could certainly come, but it is interesting to show that just, I mean, you can be long, you can be athletic, but um, you do need to have some kind of instincts to, uh, uh, to really uh, uh, become a good defender or a great defender. Um, something you mentioned about how they pretty much play man-to-man defense. That's totally rock solid. They, uh, I've actually played a hundred percent of man defense, at least according to synergy. So, uh, they've also pressed all of like seven possessions, which are like, you know, late game desperation, not really something they're going to, to right. seem towards. Um, but, uh, yeah, a, a team that, uh, I do think that their length has really helped them with, uh, uh, when it comes to contesting jump shots, but I, I do think that that has been when they've been able to like, like what they really want to happen is have teams take like, you know, one pass and, and take a shot. They, and when that's happened, when they can kind of uh, sit back, the team makes a pass, they can explode towards the ball. Um, they can use their length to contest where, where I think they've gotten in a little more trouble is when teams have had to like make them guard actions and, and make them do some, uh, you know, make them make, make them make reads defensively, make them rotate. Um, that was one thing about putting Long Beach State on Florida's schedule is like you kind of knew that they were going to play a lot of zone. You knew they were going to try to trap and, and throw out some kind of um, different defenses. Uh, so, which doesn't always help you kind of establish your offensive rhythm. Though then I mean, they they played great offensively, but it wasn't like hey they just you know executed all these sets so perfectly. But um, against Alabama, you can almost say you know unless. Nados wants to throw a huge wrench in things because they played 100% man. Um, Florida is going to see 100% man, and that means you know that they're going to be able to get into their the, the screen and roll uh, kind of sets that they want to do. They can do the wedge screen, they can do the butt screen, they can do the side screen. Uh, they can go through their Princeton sets. Like uh, this is going to make them a little bit of an easier scout, just knowing that Alabama is going to play um, man defense. So uh, for that reason, uh, it'll be kind of interesting to see. Just like you know, Florida should be pretty prepared at least uh, offensively. They just had a game where the they, they shot the ball well and, and got some rhythm, um, and they're not going to see anything particularly obscure from, from Alabama. They're, uh, you know, they play a pretty typical conventional man defense. So, uh, and I don't want to sound like that's, you know, undermining what they do. There's nothing wrong with playing that, you know, strong no, no. Man defense. Uh, but it does, just does mean that Florida is going to be able to know, hey, these are the sets we want to run against Alabama because we know they're going to defend this way. Yeah, I think the biggest concern for them from a basketball standpoint so far has just been on the glass. Uh, you know, they lose by nine to North Carolina, got out-rebounded 60-31 to 31 in that basketball game. Um, that You know, that's pretty wild. But Penn State out-rebounds them 50-40. to 40. Uh, They lose by two. Um, so I think some of that is a Dante Hall problem, Eric, in that Dante Hall is playing in professional basketball. Uh, some of that is a Rojas problem in that Rojas is not available. Uh, so... You know, they're really having to rely on, speaking of guards rebounding, uh, their guards and their wings to rebound a lot. Their reading, re- leading rebounder is John Petty. I know before the season they really felt like uh, Galen Smith was a guy that was going to help them. He's only playing 12 minutes a game and averaging uh, two rebounds. Um, Alex Reese, another guy that I thought would, would be um, a little more good on the glass, to be honest, only averaging 4.8 rebounds. They're 118th in offensive rebounding, uh, but 189th in defensive rebounding. That's not terrible, but it's kind of very average. And I think, you know, Eric alluded to it, you know, Florida, decent chance to to win the battle in the glass should help them win the game. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be, again, interesting to see if they kind of go big for a little bit more stretches. And uh, I do think that, you know, you, you, you've got guys like John Petty having to play the four at times for them, or I shouldn't say have to having to play the four. They have options there, but they want to play him at the four. Right. I mean, he's like under 85 pounds, maybe at six, five. So he's got the length to kind of on the offensive glass to, ta- to kind of taps it back, but he's going to get pushed out of the way by, um, you know, by some bigger players. So like Herbert Jones, who's probably their, you know, best option at the four, I would say kind of more conventionally six, seven. I mean, he's still pretty skinny. So I think you've just seen teams that are, um, just kind of some wider bodies at the wing. Uh, yeah. They've been able to get on the glass just by straight up pushing them out of the way. So I see like, you know, if they're going to play Herbert Jones and, and John Petty at the four, it will be interesting to see if Florida does do some uh, get Dante Bassett out there to just like push Herbert Jones out of the way on the offensive glass or Omar Payne who can out jump either of them or also push John Petty out of the way. Like, um, you know, you might worry about those matchups on the other end, uh, but uh, I, I do think that this team should have, like Florida, I really do think they should 
put a premium on offensive rebounding. I mean, this is something I wrote about early in the year, why I think it's so important. And I do think that Florida should live with, you know, being having one less perimeter defender on the floor to have some better offensive rebounding. Uh, I think there's something to that. And I think in a game like this, it'll be really interesting to see, do they match, uh, do they match smaller with Alabama when they put John Teddy at the four, or do they say like, Hey, we're going to play some, some power basketball and we're going to dominate the glass because uh, I do think it's going to be possible for them to dominate the glass. Yeah. Uh, I would, you know, obviously agree with that point. Um, and so I think uh decent time to, to kind of transition. I'll say this cause it was cool to get a, um, to get, and we've actually kind of covered a couple of the listener questions uh, that we had uh, in terms of like Florida playing bigger, the commitment to two. We had a couple questions about the commitment to uh, to play with two bigs. Um, so, you know, we always appreciate listener questions more than more than you guys know. It's the best part of uh, doing the show, I think. Um, so, thanks for those. Uh, Justin Fortner, though, asked uh, this fun hypothetical, said, if you could choose Appleby or Darushi and add them to this current team this year, which one would it be? Uh, so I'll throw that to uh, to Eric. Oh, what a spectacular question. Um, <laughs> I, I, that's so fun. Both of those guys uh, I totally think would be would be helpful. Um, and you uh, honestly, that it's honestly actually quite tough because like Tyree Appleby is – uh, just an elite shot maker. And I know some people are going to say, like, yeah, he did that in the Horizon League. I mean, when you see the shots he hit, uh, I, I'm not, like, like, it would be one thing if he just sat there with his toe on the line and had catch-and-shoot shots and shot seven catch-and-shoot attempts and uh, got threes that way. Then I'd be like, you know what, maybe that's not going to work. Uh, I mean, that he was shooting from deep, off the dribble, and shooting a ton of them and at a high percentage. So uh, I, I definitely think he would contribute. And Anthony Deruge is a... a uh, elite athlete that would be elite even in the sec he would stand above so many players um i, I would I, so so you could really argue both ways because you know florida does need scoring and uh for that reason Appleby could could really jump in there but i mean off the top of my head i, I will say deruji who uh would offer a florida a chance to play him at the four and still feel like florida's you know they could still feel like they're playing big at, at six seven with his kind of size and athleticism um also someone who can hit standstill threes as a catch and shoot guy. Uh, I, I think he would just offer a li little bit more versatility to have another elite athlete in the position next to Keontae Johnson, but also, you know, you put him on the floor next to Keontae Johnson, uh, that would be awesome. So uh, I, I will say just because of like the lack of guys at the three and four spots for this team, I'll say Daruji. But I mean, if you want to say Appleby, uh, they could desperately use, uh, you know, a guard who could score like that. So uh, that would be, uh, that would work too, but I, I will go Daruji. Also, Appleby's personality. I mean, it's awesome all the time. Actually, I mean, Daruji's awesome, too. His personality's awesome, but uh, both of them are tons of fun, but that also makes it just on the show. But I'll just lock in Daruji. <laughs> yeah, I, all right, I like it. Um, next question was uh, from Tim at G-U-T-T -T Gator. Uh, at what point is number one's play concerning with regard to this team's overall potential? I'll, I'll go first and kick it to Eric, um, and I think then we can transition into our uh, – last part of the show, but I, you know, I'm concerned about it a little bit. Cause I want, I, I thought he had some good moments against Long Beach. I thought he had some bad moments against Long Beach. I, you know, I, I kind of think he's kind of a typical freshman right now. And, and obviously I still think that Trey man is the guy that gives Florida its best shot clock buster. Uh, so we, we'd like him to develop, you know, like by the middle of conference play, I'd like to be able to trust him late in the game to go get us a basket. Um, and I do think that impacts Florida's ceiling, Eric. Yeah, I mean, Florida needs shot makers, and he was someone who going into the air, I, I kind of expected him to be in that role. So uh, when you don't have a guy like that, I, I think it definitely hurts. And it, it was nice against Long Beach State the the, that he was given the opportunity to play through some mistakes, just given the opponents. And, and I think that that will hopefully help his rhythm. I should say, I hope it helps us with him. But uh, what I really liked too was he he was able to get some some easy layups, and that was something that I thought was uh, was big because I, I feel like some of these games he's come in and uh, uh, the opportunities that have presented itself is for him to come in and shoot threes, and um, that's something he's going to need to do while he hasn't been effective at it yet. Uh, I think that it's uh, the ability he had to go get points at the rim. I mean, that's something that's going to keep you in, in games for longer, and that's 
uh, getting those two point baskets, being able to get to the paint. That's what's going to open things up for your teammates with, with kickouts. It's also just a more kind of consistent way to play basketball. It's going to present more opportunities to get, uh, uh, to, to just yeah to just be get consistent points versus relying on on a three point shot. But um, Florida just doesn't have a lot of pure scores, and and I think teams need to have them, and especially in March when uh, when defenses are tight and um, when t- when teams have thirty games of film on the Gators and and know pretty well how to defend them. You just you're going to need guys that can that can make plays off the bounce and guys that can freestyle and and uh, and kind of just make reads and and. Trey Mann kind of has the DNA to do that. Um, it hasn't been realized yet, but uh, if he doesn't, uh, you know, if he doesn't realize that a ton, I, I do think it's concerning to this team ceiling. I I would agree as, as I've already stated. And so we'll do our last part of the show. Uh, have a little fun with the end of the decade. Um, the, the first one is I think pretty easy. Uh, best Florida team of the decade. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna go first and take away the easy answer, but uh, Florida had a team go 36 and three this decade, and go to the Final Four. I think, but for having to play Shabazz Napier uh, twice, they probably win the national championship. Uh, instead, UConn, who got kind of cream this week as being the worst national champion of the decade, uh, ends up winning it. Um, who knows what happens in that rematch in the final four? If Scotty Wilbekin is healthy, you know it's kind of known now that that he was playing with a pretty serious knee bruise, and uh, I think the Gators, you know, they're they're semi-regional there with Dayton in particular, a very physical game. Took a lot out of them, uh, but that that team was sensational. The first team in the history of the SEC to go twenty-one and zero in league play as well. Yeah, that's that's the easy answer. I mean, I, I, the uh, the next best team might be uh, might be the year prior to that with some of those same guys, uh, plus uh, you know, plus Boyden and Eric Murphy. So I I would really say that yeah, obviously that uh, uh, that Final Four team's got to be the best of the decade, and just uh, just a joy to watch, and just like a team that I will still from time to time go and watch a couple of their games on uh, on YouTube because uh, there's a few good ones up there, and it's uh, uh, it's good nostalgia for me for sure. I, I mean, it's like it was that far. Uh, that long ago but that was just kind of the time the first time where like i could actually see florida games um nationally televised in canada so some of my best uh, florida gators watching memories are actually like that 2014 team where i like got friends who didn't know a thing about basketball or especially college basketball to uh, uh to take in the glory that was uh, that was that team a fun story about that team before we move on because there's so many of them but uh, i have a very good friend who uh is a is a Kentucky basketball season ticket holder, and you know he he grew up in in uh, Louisville and and uh, went to Kentucky, and he used to come down pretty frequently for the Florida Kentucky game, and he came down for Senior Day because he wanted to see the Senior Day festivities for those seniors, uh, the 2010 class. Um, Scotty Wilbekin, will you get who we already shouted out on the show? Uh, Pat Young and, and Casey Prather, who's a guy who is a testament to Billy Donovan's ability to develop kids. Um, but anyway, they do the senior ceremonies, and Florida gets a Florida ended up getting a thirty point thirty one point lead in that game. They ended up winning by I think twenty or so. But Kentucky kind of came back and made it interesting. And John Calipari would later say that was the game where we figured it out. Was the second half of the Florida game. We kind of figured out who we were, but uh, my, my Kentucky friend said he'd never seen Kentucky get beat as ruthlessly as they were getting beat on that day by a, (laughs) by a more cohesive unit of basketball players. He said, I left that bill. I left the O'Connell center in awe of, of Florida, which I thought was pretty cool from a Kentucky fan. That is awesome. I mean, that was something too that you talk about the contrast between uh, obviously a, a Kentucky team that was quite young and and I would say that year they didn't uh, those high end kind of future NBA guys weren't as awesome as they probably usually are and then you've got obviously the uh, this this Florida team that's just uh, this well oiled machine that like just looked like a professional team how 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 together they were and and how their dedication to to the small things in there, how detail oriented they were. I mean, uh, there was a lot of teams I, that would, I would say were outclassed by that Florida team. 
and one thing that you kind of mentioned too that um, about your friend wanting to see their senior night I mean like what it wasn't just like a really good team it was also like a really likable team I would say like I don't think there'd be any rival teams or anything like that that would be uh that would like really like I don't think anyone's like man I hate Willie again I think it's impossible to hate <laughs> I don't know if people did like I don't think people hated Patrick Young I don't think you could like uh, I just think it was like a very respected um liked just straight up liked in addition to the respect I just think everything about them was was awesome yeah no uh just fantastic Scotty Wilbekin was definitely the guy that people hated um <laughs> you know but but Scotty would always like pick and choose his spots. Like the fact that they lost that SEC title game to Ole Miss and Marshall Henderson and Marshall Henderson ran around doing the Gator chomp after. So, you know, Florida goes to Oxford and just impales Ole Miss <laughs> and, and Scotty, Scotty does like snow angels in the middle of Ole Miss's floor. <laughs> like after like, so, you know, they, they kind of picked and choose when they were, uh, when they were brutal. Um, but, but yeah, no, hard to dislike any of the, any of the other players on that team. I think Scotty took the brunt of the abuse and, and he was cool with that. He kind of had that, that personality and that nastiness that, that every team needs a little bit of, of that. Um, so we'll do, we'll do starting five of the decade and player of the decade last. I want to do, what was your favorite Florida basketball game of the decade? Also probably pretty easy, but some decent choices. That's actually a great question. Um, probably one that I didn't think enough. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, like, like to give like a real, a real weak answer. Um, I would say my favorite game was like any of the three I was at three years ago on my honeymoon, just because nice. they're much better than my first game I was able to be at. So, um, and it also was cool because uh, you know that was a uh, got to see Canyon Barry have one heck of a game on a team that obviously ended up doing pretty well, but. You know, I don't think that that's just kind of my personal because I don't get to go to a lot of games. So um, for me, it's obviously got to be someone, someone of that, uh, that 2014 team. Um, yeah, mm. I, I, I would say probably that it was that it ended up being tight and it almost made it like more stressful because there was a part of that like, hey, should, do we want this team to lose or, uh, just to like feel the loss? But it was that uh, the SEC uh, championship game against Kentucky. That was like a one or two point game at the end. Uh, that's one I just like distinctly remember uh, because it was just like, you know, you win that many games in a row and it was like, like you, you didn't want to see Kentucky take that away in the SEC uh, conference tournament. So for Florida to edge that one out, that one is going to uh, uh, get, that one's going to stick with me. I like it. I think, I think I have three of them and I think Florida Dayton to go to the final four just because of what it meant. And, because of having been to the elite eight four straight years and come up short the first three times, um, you know, so that one for significance, not necessarily because it was a super memorable game. The Gators were in control uh, throughout. Um, I thought Florida Gonzaga at the PK 80 was still one of the best, yeah. one of the best college basketball games I've ever seen. Um, and then for, for kind of an obscure one, how about Florida's win at Rupp arena? where Chris Chioza posted this stat line, 13 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, and three steals. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and by the way, that game was a rock fight where both teams shot under 40%, and it was a mess, and it was ugly. But guess what? It snapped Kentucky's 40-game home winning streak in the SEC uh, that stretched back, interestingly, to that 2014 Florida team. Uh and Florida, Florida, by the way, is the last – the only uh, – two SEC programs have won at Rupp in the last six years. Uh, Florida has done it twice, and then um, Tennessee uh, accomplished the feat once. So gives you an idea of how rare it is to win there, and that, that was – those are, those wins were always special. So there, there's a, some potpourri for everybody on, on the best basketball game of the decade. You could probably throw in Florida's Elite Eight lost up to Butler in double overtime too, but it's pretty heartbreaking to talk about. Yeah. I, I thought about bringing that one up, but I like wasn't <laughs> ready to like say that's my first answer. Eight um, years later, I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's like, this is kind of entirely unfair to do, but if you were to like take context out of it, so like take out like 
hey, this is NCAA tournaments or, hey, this is SEC tournament. And you just said, like, what was, like, straight up the, the just the best basketball game? Um, I, I do think it would have to be Florida Gonzaga in the PK-80. Like, just in terms of, like, if you showed it to someone who knew nothing about either team, knew nothing of college basketball, um, didn't know whether it was a non-conference game or a conference or a, you know, NCAA tournament championship, like just showed them the game. I, I do think it would stand alone as probably the best, uh, the best game. So that one does have to be included, even though it was like, you know, you normally don't think of like those non-conference games um, amongst all these like tournament games. Uh, I just think like just basketball wise, uh, incredible. And it was against, you know, like Gonzaga, which is a team I think like everyone has tons of respect for every year. Yeah, and I, we haven't even mentioned Florida-Wisconsin and the Chioza shot in the Sweet 16, which was a tremendous basketball game and a similar type deal. Another another program uh, that everybody should respect, at least. Uh, so plenty to choose from. It's interesting that a common thread is Chris Chioza, which allows me to transition into the next topic, Eric, which is the starting five of the decade. And, man, I went all over the place, back and forth, couldn't quite decide, and at the risk of getting mercilessly abused on on Twitter for this take. Uh, so my starting five of the decade is as follows. Uh, Chris Chioza at point guard. Um, Brad Beal at shooting guard. I don't care that he was a one and done. He was so good by March, it didn't really matter. Um, give me Chandler Parsons at the three. Dorian Finney-Smith will be my four. I know he was a sixth man most of his career, but that's where I'm putting him. And then uh, for me, Pat Young edges out Vernon Macklin uh, at the five. Yeah, that's an excellent. Uh, very, you know, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I have four of the same players as you, and I actually kind of expected that. Um, I also have Patrick Young. I also have Dorian Finney-Smith. I also have Chandler Parsons. Um, I also have Bradley Beal, who I will say, like, I, I don't know if this is, like, uh, fair or not, but Brad <laughs> Beal's, like, continuing to, like, shout out Florida on Twitter to, like, watch, put on Instagram him watching the games. Isn't you know, it like, cool? Florida stuff. Like, it, it almost seems like his, like, there's one and dones where, like, they were, like, they were a true one and done. Br- Bradley Beal, I do think his, like, the way he's kind of kept up with the program, it kind of like feels like he was more than that, which maybe is just like a stupid, not fair take. I know uh, Kentucky has lots of those guys too, but, but I I will say that it seems like his, uh, his kind of legacy at Florida was, was more than that of your conventional uh, one and done. Um, I I, I do have Scotty Wilbekin ahead of Chris Chioza for me. So, uh, but, uh, which is a a take that's, uh, you know, probably unsurprising, but, but I mean, (laughs) I I had the same five as you and, uh, uh, honestly i wanted to do someone different than because i kind of thought that those four would be probably the locks for everyone um for most people listening and and then you as well as we talked about this Uh, i just couldn't do it i I think that those guys just all all excelled um at at their roles and it's uh i know you said it was tough for for you between patrick young and and vernon maxwell um so yeah that that maybe a lot of people would have have maxwell but uh yeah for me it's the same four as you but just uh some me and scotty wilbekin for chris chioza yeah, and I mean, center like Mac- Macklin had a couple really good years, which is why it was kind of tough. And obviously, you know, he, he went to the Elite Eight as a senior as well. The sixth man for me would have been pretty easy. And, and it's funny because, again, because I'm not limited by the constraints of their roster role, Florida actually had three players win SEC sixth man of the year in the last decade. Uh, you know, bonus points to anybody who can name all three of those guys. But um, Canyon Barry, Dorian Finney-Smith, uh, both were able to get that done, um, as well as Chandler Parsons before the year before he became SEC Player of the Year, uh, for the first Gator to win that award. Um, but my sixth man would be Kenny Boynton, who is just a microwave. <laughs> and I loved, I just loved watching Kenny play. That guy, that guy could shoot pretty much anywhere. Uh, his jump shot was weird. I, I still don't quite understand the mechanics of it, but, uh, you know, just a tremendous skated player, one of the Florida's all-time leading scorers. Uh, and it's a testament to, like, how good Florida was this decade that he's probably – that's probably a stretch to make him your sixth man of the year or your sixth man of the decade. Yeah, I mean, Kenny Boynton, just, like, the way he has the, uh, the like, prototypical style of a uh, of a sixth man, <laughs> I would say that uh, – yeah, I would say that's uh, that's fair. I mean, 
this is like pretty weak. I, I, I won't lock it in, but I will say like for another like one and done, if you were to put Terry Blackshear as your like preliminary sixth man, and I know sure. he's like your, your typical sixth man and he might be someone who's a little more position locked in the five, but when you actually just once again, look at like single season performances, I, I think that Kerry Blackshear is, is going to get there. And I mean, if he wins SEC player of the year, like he was picked preseason, um, I know he's only one year, but I think he's a, he's in that conversation as well. So I, I probably wouldn't lock that in as my as my sixth man, but I, I think he will uh, he will factor in. And um, even honestly, I mean, it's not something that uh, once again not a prototypical uh, uh, role, I would say. But uh, you know, like Kavarius Hayes might be also on my like sixth man, just as like my favorite. Uh, you know, one one of the favorites that would just like fill a role as a defensive. Like if you were really like building a basketball team. Kavarius Hayes as a defensive big off the off the bench would be would be good too. But I do think Boyden as like your prototypical microwave, he fits that role as a, as your six man all decade. Yeah, no, I agree. And Casey Hill maybe also uh, you know goes to a Final Four, goes to an Elite Eight. Uh, there are two players in in the history of the NCAA tournament with fourteen assist games in the Sweet Sixteen. One of them is Magic Johnson, the other is Casey Hill. Um, so. Uh, he did that as a true freshman, by the way, against Ryan Anderson and UCLA. Isn't that fun? Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know, man. I, such an underrated career. We we could do a whole pod on, like, underrated Florida players that the Hive has hated. Um, but but Casey w- would be a guy you'd talk – like, if you were going to do 12 players, he'd certainly be on your team. Oh, that is a take people probably won't agree with. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, I know that would be interesting, like – Hey, who would you rather have as your backup point guard in the All-Decade team, Andrew Nemhart or uh, or Casey Hill? That'll be an interesting. Uh, That's a good debate. That's I a mean, good some debate. people would be like, also want Andrew Nemhart nowhere near the team. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those people. But anyways, pro- I, probably... third, I would say third point guard because most people would have. Yeah, Chioza yeah, and, uh, yeah. Sorry, Chioza and uh, and Wilbekin, uh in some order. So it'd be like your third guard, I, I should say. But yeah. um, more guards, yeah. the better, baby. The more guards, the better. Uh, <laughs> if we, if you give me 13, I'm taking Justin Leon as my 13th man, just so you know, glue guy. Uh, yeah, Justin <laughs> Leon, Justin Leon and will you get can dive on the floor for a ball for the right to be the glue guy. Oh, that would be, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's our glue guy. Uh, our glue guy competition player of the decade. Are, is everybody ready for my hottest take? Oh All right. man. Hottest, get your fire extinguishers out. Hottest take in the history of Florida's basketball hour. You have to eliminate the fact that now I think all he does is drink martinis and sit on an NBA bench and make millions of dollars more than his value. But for me, it's Chandler Parsons. Uh, The first Florida player to win SEC player of the year. Uh, Just an absolutely absurd senior season. Um, And you know, multiple Elite Eight appearances himself. I'm convinced that if they win that game against Butler, Eric, they win the national championship. I'm convinced of it. I think they were better than the UConn team that beat Butler in the final. I agree with that. I would, I would take that. So that's my, that's my take. And look, I, it's not – I you know, the easy answer is Brad Buell because he's the best player at the program but he only played it for one year. So really the debate to me, I think has to be between Wilbekin, maybe Chioza and, and Parsons. And I just think Parsons is the best player. Yeah, no, I, I can, I can get behind that for, for me, it was Wilbekin as, as, as well. Um, just for, uh, you know, two years of obviously just like really elite starting point guard play. And then, yeah. uh, you know, the, even just, just coming in right away and, and being pretty good and, uh, and contributing. So for me, it's also a little bit of, um, you know, you take Florida's best team of the decade and you take what was probably their most important player, their best player. Um, and, you know, it's probably a safe way to go. Uh, I think the Chandler Parsons as well, just being like, um, you talk about like positional scarcity. There's not a lot of wings like that in, in college basketball. So he was probably a little bit more uh, unique than, you know, like Scotty Wilpikin's awesome, but there are a ton of awesome guards out there. Um, not to you know disparage anything he did, but um, I do like your Chandler Parsons take. I just can't uh, can't personally be as bold, and I'll say uh, uh, also. <laughs> and look, and I think Eric's probably right. By the way, I just kind of did this exactly. to point to point out how I, uh, it, for two reasons. One, uh, and I was Parsons played in one Elite Eight. I'm sorry, 
but I still think they win the national title if they win that game. Um, and Parsons was phenomenal in that game, by the way. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the other knock on Parsons would be he only played two years this decade because his career at Florida started in the previous decade. Now, he was six man of the year in 2010. He was SEC player of the year in 2011. He was an All-American in 2011. So, um, you know, Florida, as good as they've been, All-American has been rare, and it's why Scotty Wilbekin should actually be my sixth man over Kenny Boynton too, just because, like, Florida doesn't have a ton of uh, of All-American players. I know Chris Chioza was honorable mention. Um, so I think there's guys that that just are program changers. Wilbekin kind of – or Parsons kind of wheeled Florida back into the NCAA tournament um, in 2010, which was their first appearance since the national title team and then leads them to the, the Elite Eight. Um, before going on to have a pretty good NBA career that has kind of been derailed by injuries. But now it is kind of amusing to see him like on benches, just making lots of money doing nothing. Yeah. He uh, came into the league right at the, uh, right at the, or sorry, came into his like second and third contracts right at the big salary boom. And he got, uh, <laughs> yeah, he got paid. And uh, yeah, I think the two, like if you ever read, uh, he had a couple pieces in the players tribune, just about like the struggle of like knowing he's paid a lot and, for that reason, getting a ton of hate from fans for not contributing. He's like, talks about just like totally understanding that. And it's a, uh, yeah, he seems like a good guy who kind of understands the, uh, the scenario, all, all that stuff. So uh, yeah, definitely worthy of consideration for that title. Yeah. Very, very good guy. But Eric probably correct on the, the four year player, Scotty Wilbekin, um, SEC player of the year, all American uh, first team, all American too. So, you know, uh, Probably the correct choice, but it was a fun decade of Florida basketball. Uh, five Elite Eights, a Final Four, a couple SEC championships, um, and SEC play for a new decade starts on uh, Saturday against Alabama. So just uh, Happy New Year to everybody, and um, we'll be back after the uh, victory over the Crimson Tide. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like to hear. So, uh, yeah, hope uh, hope everyone has a great end to their holiday season. Um if I sound a little bit, uh, you know, more warmer, a little more audible chocolate, it's because uh, my lovely wife got me a uh, USB mic for uh, for Christmas, so that my uh, podcasting can be a little smoother. So, uh, yeah, shout out to shout out to Rachel, who will also be with me at uh, a couple Florida basketball games in a couple weeks. So, I hope to see some of you there as well. But uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Bye, everybody. <laughs>